Right, okay. Um, Matthew. Robert's read all of Matthew today, so this will be a bit of revision. Oh, not all of it. Well, Matthew 14. I expect you got that far. Matthew chapter 14. And uh, we're going to start reading from verse 22. So, then Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up into the hills by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. But the boat by this time was many furlongs distant from the land, beaten by the waves, and the winds were against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified, saying, It's a ghost and they cried out for fear. But immediately he spoke to them, saying, Take heart, it is I, have no fear. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, bid me come to you on the water. He said, Come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid, and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and caught him, saying to him, O man of little faith, why did you doubt? <coughs> and when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. And those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. Now I just want to read verse 30 again. When Peter saw the wind, he was afraid, and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Now, in that verse, Peter here, a disciple of Jesus, is in a right old state. He's terrified and he is sinking. And uh, we all know that sinking feeling, don't we? We all know what it is to be in situations where all oh, that sinking feeling, all right? And that's exactly what Peter is in here. Now, we're going to go through this story in some detail, and it is, it's, it's, it's quite amazing what comes out. Now, let's, in, in verse 22, all right, Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. Now, the thing is, Jesus here, he told them to get into the boat and he said, right, go, cross the lake, go, you know, and I mean, it was miles across. And Jesus has launched them out in the boat completely on their own. And it was Jesus who said, go, all right. Now notice that there are no crowds now. The disciples have just been with Jesus, and Jesus has fed the 5,000. Now that's, that's pretty good stuff. That's, that's, that's exciting, that is. All right? uh, you know, American TV evangelists eat your hearts out. Because right? they've been there. Jesus has fed 5,000 people. And the 12 disciples, I mean, they, they were the ones who were in with Jesus. In the midst of this big crowd, they were the in-crowd. Now, the kind of security that that would have given them, they'd have felt so safe. There they were, standing by Jesus and all the crowds around, knowing that they were the special ones to Jesus, all right. And, uh, you know, so the crowds are gone. And suddenly, there they are, in the boat, in the middle of the lake, completely on their own. But also, when Jesus sent them out into the lake, on their own, he didn't go with them. 
So not only are the crowds gone, but as far as they were concerned, to the five senses, there was no Jesus either. Now here, they are completely alone. Now, it's important that the Lord brings times like that upon us. Remember, it was him who sent them out into that situation. You see, it's the times when not only are we in circumstances of being really vulnerable because, you know, like the, the, the crowds are gone and the safety and the security of normal day-to-day -day life, but also it's the times when Jesus actually withdraws any conscious sense we might have of him being there. All right? Now, obviously, Jesus was with the disciples in the boat because Jesus, being God, is everywhere, always. But as far as their five senses were concerned, they were alone. Now, for them, it's because they couldn't see him. Now, we, we don't see him. But very often, we're aware of his presence. There's a subjective awareness and knowing inside of us where we're experiencing the fact that he's with us and we're experiencing the fact that you know he just pours out his love on us but there are the times when Jesus withdraws that he never actually leaves us he's always there but he withdraws any sense of his presence and it seems like he's not there and it's Jesus who does that. doesn't mean there's anything wrong. Jesus does that in the same way that here he sends the disciples out into the lake, but he didn't go with them. All right. Now, verse 23. What's Jesus doing? <coughs> After he had dismissed the crowds, he went up into the hills by himself to pray. So the disciples are out there on their own. Jesus has almost like got shot of them really hasn't he there they are all on their own and Jesus while they're out there on their own he gets on his own in order that he could pray and I have no doubts at all that he did that because he wanted to pray for them because of the work he was going to do in them having sent them out into the situation they were now in if you go to Hebrews chapter 7 let's see this thing and this is tremendously important. Jesus sends them out into the middle of the lake, and we're going to see what's going to befall them as we go through this. And it wasn't very nice, all right? Jesus sent them into the situation, and then he withdrew to pray for them. Now, in Hebrews chapter 7, we'll read from verse 23. It says this. Uh, this is comparing the priesthood of Jesus, which was unique, with the priesthood in the Old Testament, which was to a penny. The former priests were many in number. Oh, sorry. Yeah, that's right. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. He never dies. Consequently, he is able to the uttermost to save those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. What this tells us is that Jesus is actually praying for us, each one of us, the whole time. Now obviously we know that if we ask the Lord in faith, he hears our prayers and he answers. But if you're like me, 
it can be very, you know, when when you've prayed a prayer, you think, well, you know, there's got to have been something. If, if the Lord doesn't answer my prayer, I won't be at all surprised, all right? We have that problem, all right? But Jesus is praying for us, and Father God always answers Jesus' prayers. So even when we feel that our prayers are virtually a waste of time, we can know that Jesus is praying for us, and his prayers are not a waste of time at all. And in those times when it seems that Jesus is a million miles away and everything, as we're going to see, is going to go wrong and it's absolutely awful and it's a dark situation, in those times, Jesus is praying for us. Now let's ask, what is the sort of thing that he's praying? What is the prayer that he's praying for us that Father is going to answer? Well, first of all, if you go to Luke chapter 22, and just to give you an idea, <clears throat> because this situation that Jesus has sent them out into is going to develop into a nasty one, alright? And, and Jesus uses nasty circumstances to do a work in us. And uh, in Luke 22, verse 31, okay, let's see something that he said to, Je uh, to Peter, alright? And he said this, Simon, Simon, well, I remember Simon Peter, so you call him Peter or Simon. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. Now, the idea here is the threshing sledge. Uh, when you've, you know, sort of like cut the corn and that, you've got all the chaff that's no good. You've got the good stuff and you've got the bad stuff. The threshing sledge thrashes it about to get rid of the bad stuff. So only the good stuff is left. So what Jesus is saying, Peter, you're in for a thrashing, okay? But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. Now, can you see that? Jesus is saying, Satan's going to give you a good thrashing, Peter, but I'm going to pray for you. But what is Jesus going to... Is he going to pray that Satan won't give him a thrashing? No, he's not going to pray that the nasty situation goes away. Jesus says, Peter, I'm going to pray that in the nasty situation your faith won't fail. I.e., that through the nasty situation that's coming upon you, I'm going to be praying that it will do its work in you and that you will grow in the Lord as a result of it. Now, Peter didn't know at the time what Jesus was saying, didn't understand it. He did later. So, if you go to 1 Peter... We can see how well Peter understood this, because 1 Peter was written, obviously, years after that. And again, give us the idea of what it is that the Lord was praying for the disciples as he sent them out into the lake, and what he's praying for us when we're going through those kind of <coughs> difficult times. 1 Peter 1, verse 6 to 7. Look at this. Uh, in verse 3 to 5, he's just talking about the salvation of God, all right? You know, the fact that we're saved. Now, look, he says, 1 Peter 1, and we're going to start reading from verse 6. And he says, in this you rejoice, i.e. that you're saved, all right? In this you rejoice. Though now, for a little while, you may have to suffer various trials, so that the genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, which, though perishable, is tested by fire, may redound to praise and glory and honour at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now what he's saying here is that the difficulties, the trials, the testings, the temptations, they are there to 
prove the genuineness of your faith. And the picture here is that you've got precious metals and basically they get beaten up in various ways so that the impurities can be removed so that they become even more valuable afterwards. All right. And what Peter's saying is if you've got a precious bit of gold or metal, look at the trouble that people will go to to test that, you know, to make it better and better and better. And he's saying if, if, if that's done for mere gold, which one day is going to vanish, as Robert says, it's all going to go back in the box one day. If that's the case for gold, how much more is God going to test our faith, which is eternal? Because it's a gift from him. So we see here that Peter is now passing on to others. He learned. You know, Jesus once said, Peter, you're really going to go through it now, and I'm going to pray that your faith won't fail. Now, Peter came through that. Here he's writing to a church. What does he say? He says, look, these trials, these testings, they're so that your faith can grow, so that you can grow in the Lord. Peter had experienced it for himself, and so he could pass that on to other people. So then, Jesus is praying. They're out in the middle of the lake, on their own, Jesus is, is praying for them. Now, let's read verse, verse 24. But the boat, by this time... Now, in the prior verse, it says, when evening came, he was there alone. So Jesus was praying right through into the evening. Night is falling now, okay? And in verse 24, but the boat, by this time, was many furlongs distant from the land, beaten by the waves for the wind was against them. Now, there's several things here. The disciples are right out in the middle of the lake now. If anything gets dodgy, there's no jumping out and paddling to shore. You see, they are out of their depth. They are a long way from the shore, many furlongs, all right? Now then, when you're in a boat, what does land represent? I'll tell you, safety and security. They are a long way from their security. And this is a tremendously important thing that God does in us. And he does it through the trials and testings we go through. See, the point is, the Lord is our security. We are secure in him. He is the source of our life. But the problem is, as sinful people, and, and, and at least having years of not knowing the Lord before we got saved, the problem is, our sense of security, our sinful natures, latch on to things. You see? Or latch on to something like, well, if people think well of me, then I get my security because people think I'm a wonderful bloke. You see? Our sense of security, what our security is in, is all wrong. Now, the Lord wants our security to be in him alone. So, therefore, the Lord has to tra transfer our sense of security away from whatever it is in naturally so that it becomes to be in the Lord himself. Can you see? Now, that can mean the actual removing of that which we find security in in this life. Not necessarily permanently, but there are times when Jesus literally, things that we find security in, and they may be legitimate things, he actually takes them away to transfer our security onto him. Now, in the case of legitimate things, he gives them back. When he's done his work and our security is in him, he gives them back. But the point is that here, 
the disciples, they're out in the middle of the lake and they are a long, long way from any sense of natural security. And the Lord removes things from our lives which we have our security in. Often he gives them back, but he wants to transfer our sense of security away from things or away from a sense of self-importance or whatever it is. Take all that away so that we find our security coming more and more in him. Go to Genesis 32 and just have a, a very quick look at um, a little episode in the life of Jacob. And this is one that we, we go to very often here and we, we will again tonight, Genesis chapter 32. And of course, uh, you know, God had, had called Jacob, he'd, he'd become a believer, he knew the Lord, and the Lord had great things for him. The Lord, you know, planned to use Jacob in a big way. Now, in chapter 32, and the first two verses, now this is years after Jacob, you know, sort of came to know the Lord. This is years later. He's a seasoned believer by the time this happens. Now, look, Verse 32, uh, chapter 32, the first two verses. Jacob went on his way, and the angels of God met him. And when Jacob saw them, he said, This is God's army. So he called the name of that place Mahanaim. Now that tells us an awful lot about Jacob. For the simple reason here, he gets a revelation of the army of the Lord. He actually sees the angelic hosts. God opens his eyes and there are the angels and Jacob has a revelation of the angelic army serving the Lord. Now, that's a pretty special occurrence so he thought, right, I'm going to name this place after this. What does he name it? He names it Mahanaim which means the place of two armies. And you can immediately see, see you know, how Jacob thought. There's God's army Here's my army, me, my family, all my riches, all the people who look up to me as big leader, because everyone looks up to Jacob as big leader. He'd have done well in America, all right? Everyone looks up to him, all right? And his evaluation was that when I pull my resources with God's resources, wow, won't we really do a lot? Can you see? And that was the mentality that Jacob had. He was a man who was helping God. If God kept his part of the deal, then you trust Jacob to keep his. Can you see? He was a man pooling resources with God. Now, what God had to show Jacob was that there were not two armies at all. There was only one army, the army of the Lord. Because, of course, the flesh is of no avail. Absolutely none. Of no value when it comes to spiritual things at all. And that is the lesson that Jacob had to learn. Now then, if you go along into verse 22 and 24 and you know this story is the bit where where God himself wrestles with Jacob Jacob ends up in a wrestling match with Jesus and the result of it is that Jesus touches his thigh we know it was Jesus because Jacob said I've seen God face to face now God the Father is spirit the Holy Spirit is spirit this is Jesus in his pre-existence wrestling with Jacob and he broke his thigh alright and that was when Jacob really came through the victorious, you know, sort of living, and, and his name was changed from Jacob to Israel, all right. But look at what happens, how God got him there. Verse 22. The same night he arose and took his two wives, his two maids, and his eleven children, and crossed the ford of Jabbok. He took them 
and sent them across the stream and likewise everything he had and Jacob was left alone is it then a man wrestled with him you see what God does before the Lord could really get to Jacob he had to get Jacob in a situation where he was alone all his security all of what he would have considered to be his power his influence his wealth whatever the Lord separated him from it. it was all returned to him later on but in order to really go deep in Jacob God had to separate him from everything he had and everything that was dear to him alright it had to be just Jacob and the Lord all his natural security is gone and that is exactly what Jesus is here doing in the disciples he sent them out into the middle of the lake and they're alone no sense of Jesus being with them and miles and miles from the shore all their securities are gone alright now then it gets worse because a storm blows up so now the disciples are not just in the middle of the lake away from security away from any sense of Jesus being with them <coughs> now a storm blows up their situation starts to get worse and worse and worse alright and what we see is that now they are beaten by the waves and the wind is against them now it's fascinating what's going to come out of that because what I understand is this when you're at sea and that is what they were then your circumstances are wind and waves when you're sitting in a boat in the middle of the sea winds and waves are your circumstances so what we're seeing here is that their circumstances now turn against them and it's a change definitely for the worse now let's see the two things that they're going through first of all they have been beaten by the waves now this Greek word beaten that Matthew uses here is fascinating here he uses the Greek word basinitso now it comes from a noun basinus which is a touchstone it means a touchstone now a touchstone was used in the testing of gold and silver and precious metals alright and what a touchstone is it's, it's a black stone and it is very very hard alright and it was used to test gold and silver from the streak that it left on it if you get a touchstone and really scrape it along the precious metal then the color of the streak it leaves is an indication as to how pure the gold or silver is now do you remember the one Peter thing we saw a few moments ago when Peter said about trials and testings what are they there for to refine our faith to purify our faith like gold or like silver alright and bassanitso literally mean this word beaten literally means to test by rubbing on the touchstone and when something got rubbed on the touchstone it wasn't a gentle little rub rub it was a real scrape scrape can you see and this is precisely why so much of following the Lord alright and so much of his work in us really grates really grates 
you know, when following the Lord is like, you know, nails going down the blackboard. <laughs> you know, it's really tough and it really seems to grate on us. Because the point is, it's the use of the touchstone, all right, of hard and dark situations in our lives to really show what we've got beneath the surface. Remember, that touchstone, it was hard and it was dark. They're black, the touchstone, and they're really hard. Now then, the touchstone, the situations that God puts us through, those hard and dark situations, which really grate on us, which really rub us up the wrong way, these are sent because God is testing our faith. And the idea is he wants to scrape the surface to find out what is really there underneath. Because you can have a lovely ring, and it's sparkling gold, all right? And it looks lovely. Brilliant. Out comes a touchstone, one little scrape. Oh no, it's iron pyrite, it's fool's gold. It's a deception. Can you see? And so therefore, often we think, well, yeah, I'm a real dis I'm really sold out to the Lord, all right? Out comes a touchstone, and we're smiling, we're praising the Lord, we're doing everything right. Out comes God's touchstone. And suddenly we find out what is really in our hearts. The reactions, the thoughts, the rebellion, the kind of our equivalent of stamping our feet, saying no, no, no. Can you see? The testing of our faith, all right. And this word, beaten, which comes from bazanos, the touchstone, it actually, in the Greek language, it came to mean, it, its meaning changed, and it came to mean this, to question someone by applying torture. <coughs> and eventually, its usage meant to torture. Alright? Applying the pressure of physical pain in order to get information out of somebody. Can you see? Because what does the touchstone do? It scrapes away at the precious metal and it gets out what is really in there underneath. And so this word became the Greek word for torture. So, therefore, basanitsu, as used here, when it talks about that they were beaten by the waves, i.e. that their situation was beating them, all right, it means to be deeply distressed, to be in pain, to be in a tortuous situation, to be tormented or vexed. Now, that is the fullness of the meaning that this little word here beaten by the waves. I mean, you read it, oh, they were beaten, you know, little waves lapping over their boat. No, not at all. I mean, they, they were being tortured by the situation that they were in. It was that drastic what they were going through. And they were distressed, they were frightened. I mean, they, in every way, it, it was a terrible situation for them to be in. All right. Now, that is what the disciples felt like in the situation that God had led them into. When Jesus shoved them out into the middle of the lake on their own, and this storm came up, then deep distress is what the disciples were feeling at that time, all right? So they were being beaten by the waves. Now, secondly, the wind was against them. And this Greek verb here, against them, is enantios. And again, very carefully chosen word. There are other words that Matthew could have used, but he used this one. And this word, in Antios, it means the opposition and antagonism of an adversary. Right? The opposition and antagonism 
of an adversary. If you go to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, I'll show you somewhere else in the New Testament where this word is used, and it will give you the idea. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, and we'll read verse 14 and 15. Um, right, he says, For you, brethren, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus, which are in Judea. And you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews, who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets, and drove us out, and displeased God, and opposed all men by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles. Now there, when it talks about, and drove us out, that's that word. And here, it's people who are so against you, they're physically throwing you out of town. Your enemies, gnashing their teeth with hatred, removing you physically, all right? Now that is the meaning here of this word, okay? Remember their situation, it's, it's beating them, it's really making them suffer, all right, like a big stick thing. But also, it's really like an enemy is coming against them. That's, that's what it feels like. So we can sum up their situation thus. They felt their situation that the Lord had led them into. We hadn't led them into, he pushed them into, didn't he? They felt that situation to be utterly distressing, torturous, with absolutely everything going against them. Now that is the description we get here in the Greek of how they felt about their situation. Now that raises a question, can you identify with this? <laughs> can you identify with this feeling? I mean, whether in past or present experience, alright? Because uh, if not, then you've got it to look forward to. <laughs> it's as simple as that. <laughs> so, a little bit of good news there for the younger believers, alright? But remember, the important thing is that it was the Lord himself who had set it up. Jesus himself set this up in order to do a deeper work in them. Right, now let's, let's, let's go on to verse 25. In the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. Now then, so now Jesus appears. You know, there's the storm and, and suddenly Jesus is there. Alright, walking on the sea. Now, given that they'd set out just after lunch, and given that now it's the fourth watch of the night, okay, shortly before dawn the next day, the disciples, therefore, have been in this plight for quite a long time. It's not that the storm blew up and then ten minutes later along comes Jesus. I mean, you know, they've been in this storm for hours and through the night as well, you know, the, the, the worst time to be in a storm at sea, alright? It was absolutely awful. So they really had been in this plight for some time. So Jesus delayed coming to them. He did not get in there particularly quickly. He knew that only by delaying could the circumstances really be doing their work in the disciples. And God's delays are vitally important for us. Now, there are any number of situations that happen to us, that the Lord leads us into, <laughs> all right, any number of situations where ultimately the Lord does want to rescue us from them. Of course he does. But the point is we naturally want rescuing yesterday. 
you know, or something goes wrong and 24 hours later we feel, oh well, yeah, you know, I mean, okay, it was tough, but it's done its job, you know, Lord, take it away. Is he? And very often God delays and delays and delays and he just seems to leave you in it, all right? Because often the situation has to go on for as long as is needed in order for him to do his work in us, all right? Now think about it. Once they saw Jesus coming to them on the water, the situation changed somewhat. But up till then, they had to simply trust him, as it were, in the dark. Now think about it. Genuine faith only comes into play when you can't see what the Lord's up to. Haven't the foggiest idea what he's doing, all right? And haven't the foggiest idea what the outcome is. That, and only that, brings genuine faith into play. I mean, after all, I'm only going to find out if I trust Belinda if I'm happy when she's not with me. I mean, if Belinda's with me, I don't have to trust her, do I? My faith and trust in Belinda as my wife doesn't come into play as long as I can see her. Of course it doesn't. I know she's not up to anything. Faith comes into play when I can't see her, then I find out if I have faith in her, because I'm absolutely at peace. Now the point is, if we can see what God's doing, well of course we trust him, that's easy. It's when we can't see what he's up to. It's that feeling of, oh, it's as if he's not there. When everything is dark, when everything is... When we cannot see a possible way out of a situation, that is when we discover whether we truly trust the Lord or not. Can you see that? And the disciples are here in this situation, and it's only something like this that enables faith to grow. All right. So, enough time in the storm, all right, so then Jesus, the delay is over, and on the scene he comes. Now, notice that Jesus was walking on the water, just, just note that. By the way, legend has it um, that, that this, and this, this was recorded in some historical documents which are thought to have been lost many centuries, but legend has it that there was another fishing boat fairly near, and that someone witnessed this. And it was in actual fact an immigrant from Yorkshire. And he's recorded to have said, as Jesus walked past him, Hey up, lad, I don't care what your name is, but you're not walking on top water while I'm fishing. All right? But that, that is legendary. I, 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 can't, I can't actually you know, say that that is true, but you know, my researches did bring me across that. All right? No, notice that Jesus here is walking on the water. Now then... <laughs> Yeah, the situation that has got so on top of the disciples, you know, I mean, the sea, I mean, they were terrified. The situation that was so on top of them, Jesus was himself completely on top of, you see, because he was walking on the sea, all right? Now, what's interesting is that in the Bible, the sea is used symbolically for something. In the Bible, when it talks about the beast, rising, you know, the kingdom of the Antichrist, Revelation 12. The beast rises out of the sea. Now, the beast represents the kingdom of the Antichrist, the one world system, all right? It's talking there about the rule of Satan over humankind. And the beast rises out of the sea. Because in the Bible, the sea is symbolic of humanity and the affairs of man. Is he? The sea is used in the Bible symbolically for that. And here, 
Jesus comes to them and he is walking on the sea. Jesus is completely on top of every human situation that there is. Now, often we find that when our circumstances are unpleasant, it's very often due to other people, isn't it? And remember, the winds were against them. And often, if we say that everything is going against us, usually what we mean is that other people are against us. Can you see? So Jesus is walking on the sea. Jesus is on top of the situation. The disciples definitely aren't. The disciples are kind of weighed down by it, where Jesus comes along walking on the top of it. The sea represents human affairs. And very often, the difficulties that we go through are the difficulties caused by other people. And when things are against us, it's very often because other people are against us. And you remember when we said that when it talks about the winds being against them, the Greek word, it was specifically one for the opposition of adversaries, enemies, other people who are set or who have set themselves against you. Just go to Romans 8, verse, verse 31, just a little verse that, that Paul chucks out. And um, some Christians, if you talk about people being against you, they... They look at you all funny, oh, you know, but if we love everyone, no one's going to be against us, are they? You know, which is a dog. Look what Paul says here. He says, Romans 8.31, If God is for us, who can be against us? Now, the reason Paul says that is because he was perfectly used to having people who were totally set against him because he was following the Lord. So human opposition is going to happen. But Jesus is walking on the sea. The disciples were pressed down by their situation. They were groveling under their circumstances. But Jesus was walking on top of it all. Jesus was completely in control. Now, in verse 26, look at this. <coughs> but when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified, saying, it's a ghost. And they cried out for fear. Now, the disciples see him coming and they freak. They absolutely freak out here. You'd have thought they'd be relieved, wouldn't you? In the middle of the storm and no jet, and then suddenly here comes, you'd have thought they'd be, oh great, it's Jesus. Oh, I feel better now. Well, no, they freaked out. It absolutely terrified them. Far from being relieved, it made the situation even worse. And they now lose what little reason was left to them. They really do. And this is what fear can do to us. Whether physical danger, as here, because they were in physical danger with the, the storm, or our fears and insecurities in general. Fear and insecurity can, uh, I mean, otherwise rational people can end up quivering wrecks when fears and insecurities overtake them. I know, I've been there, it's happened to me, alright. So now they're seeing Jesus, but their fear is ruling them. And rather being glad, they go from being really frightened to utterly terrified. All right, that's the jump that they take. All right. Now, now, this is really shown out just how much over the edge they've gone now and that all common sense has departed from them because they think here that Jesus is a ghost. All right. Um, you know, they were terrified saying, it is a ghost. 
Now, the actual Greek word here, in some versions of your Bible, I think that says, you know, that they say it's a spirit. That is a wrong translation. The actual Greek word here is phantasma. And it's the Greek word, it means apparition, phantom, phantasm, or a ghost. Alright? It is not spirit, it is specifically a ghost. Okay? And this instance here, and in Mark's account of the same story, they are the only two times in the entire New Testament where this word, phantasma, is used. The only occurrences of it in the entire New Testament. And I'll tell you why. The Jews didn't believe in ghosts. They knew better than to believe in ghosts because of the Old Testament. They had the Old Testament. They knew that the dead didn't come back. They knew that sort of like spiritualism and all this kind of stuff was demonic, it was demons pretending to be dead people. They knew full well that if someone died, they up or down. No coming back. So the Jews did not believe in ghosts at all. And we can really see here just how their fear is affecting their thinking and their judgments. But after all, they don't believe in ghosts. None of the disciples believed in ghosts. Wouldn't have occurred to them any more than to believe in little green men from Mars. They did not believe in ghosts. But now suddenly they think Jesus is a ghost. This is how far they've gone. But secondly, in order to have been a ghost, Jesus would have had to have died. And they only saw him 12 hours previously. Should they suddenly assume that Jesus is dead and is now appearing to them as a ghost? Can you see, it is completely irrational. All right, but here's the point. They simply weren't thinking straight. When fear of any kind gets a hold of us, and you see, the thing is, when God really deals with us, part of what he's doing is he's bringing our fears and our insecurities to the surface so he can deal with them, so he can take them away so that we can find our security in him, so that we can find out. I mean, in the Bible, 365 times the Bible says fear not. That's one for every day of the year. <coughs> now, if the Bible says fear not 365 times, it's because it knows we've got a problem with fear. And the Lord wants us to set, to set us free from that. So fears and insecurities have to be brought to the surface in our lives. Now, therefore, as it comes out, we've got to learn how to handle it. And it's quite simply this. When fear of any kind is getting a hold of us, it's vital that we do not pay any attention at all to what we end up thinking. Don't make decisions when you're feeling fearful or insecure. Can you get the point? I'd add to that, don't make decisions when you're worried either. Can you see? Because those decisions <coughs> are bound to be wrong. On such occasions when fear is overtaking us and insecurity and worry, um, when it's like that, our thoughts are a combination of two things. They're a combination of a sinful mind running wild and demonic input from the outside. Can you see? Now the disciples, they gave in to their fear thinking and they concluded that Jesus was a ghost. And what should have brought them relief terrified them even more. Can you see what I mean? So it's important that we learn not to listen to our fears at all. And basically, and it says here, and they cried out for fear. And what happens now, they're sitting in the boat, alright, 12 grown men, they're sitting in this boat, and they are yelling and screaming for their lives. I mean, they are having a fit here. Can you imagine it? Because Jesus is coming to them. So that is the state 
that they have managed to get themselves into. All right. Now then, in verse 27, look. <coughs> Immediately he spoke to them, saying, Take heart, it is I, have no fear. The Lord immediately reassures them. All this fear, all this anxiety, was actually quite needless. There was nothing whatsoever to be frightened of. It was utterly needless. But that fear was there because they weren't trusting Jesus. They would trust him to an extent when they could see him, but we've already seen that faith comes into play when you can't see what someone's up to, not when you can. And now they're discovering that they have really no trust in Jesus whatsoever. And that's an important revelation that they're getting here. So, Jesus reassures them, saying, look, there's no need for this fear. Now, here, it, it sounds quite nice. He says, take heart, it is I, have no fear. Now, in the English, that's rather, oh, right, oh, lads, take heart, have no fear, I'm here. That's how it comes over in the English. That's not what it is in the Greek, all right? Jesus reassures them, yes, of course he does, and whenever there's fear, you need to reassure. But this word, translated here by take heart, is tharsiu. Now, in the Greek, it means to be of good courage. And to put it in the vernacular, what Jesus says to them here is, don't be such cowards. It's me. I'm here. He tells them off. It's not, come on, lads, take heart. <laughs> he's telling them, he's saying, you cowards. Now, he's not calling them cowards because he expected them to be brave in the natural. He's calling them cowards because they have no trust in him whatsoever. <coughs> They're absolutely in pieces, and that is why Jesus is telling them off. Now then, fear always needs reassurance from the Word of God. You'll find that whenever, in the Bible, whenever God's people are frightened as a result of following the Lord, when they're frightened as a result of backsliding, that's a bit different. But when they're frightened as a result of following the Lord, you'll find that the Lord's response is always to reassure them. All right? Now, there's that little smack on the wrist as well. Okay. But it's simply this. Is the Lord looking after us or not? Can the Lord be trusted or not? And that is where the Word of God comes in. This is why we've got to hide the Word of God in our heart and, and rest on the promises that he's given us. And that will mean that we needn't give in to fear. All right, it feels like the Lord's gone. He's deserted me. Where is he? But what did Jesus say? I will never leave you nor forsake you. Can you see? Now, when fears that he's deserted us come in, we combat, we reassure ourselves with the truth of the Word of God. Because all worry, all anxiety, all fear is based on one thing. The failure to believe that Jesus, one, either can take care of us, or two, wants to take care of us. So on the one hand, fear and worry either accuses God of being weak, or accuses him of being rotten. Some Christians believe that God won't look after them because he can't. You know, when, when, when push comes to shove, it's, oh, well, even God can't do anything about this. I mean, that's stupid. God is omnipotent. Nothing is impossible to God. So that is to accuse God of being weak, which is ridiculous. But 
Other times a Christian might be worrying and fretting. They believe that Jesus can look after them, but in their hearts is this thought, oh, but I bet he won't. <laughs> so, so then they think God's rotten. And uh, equally, because God's not rotten, he's absolutely lovely. All right. So then all this fear is coming out to the surface. And the disciples in this situation, so I bet they felt good after the 5,000. I, really, I mean, they after all distributed it all, didn't they? I bet they were glowing, all the crowds looking at them. You know, and the, 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 the crowds start to disperse. And of course, Jesus at the end of it all, you know, who's around Jesus? Well, it's the 12, isn't it? And there they are, you know, sort of like their halos are, are really glowing. And everyone's looking at them, oh, wow, wish I could be one of the 12. And they're feeling good because they trust the Lord, don't they? So Jesus immediately gets them out in the middle of the sea. And it's as if he's saying, you, you really felt good, didn't you? you? You really thought you were growing, didn't you? You, you really thought that you were getting there, didn't you? Well, there's a boat over there. Bye-bye. Here's he? Because he wants to make sure that they're getting the proper measure of themselves. So. Right, now then, verse 28. <coughs> Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, bid me to come to you on the water. Now then, <coughs> they are already in a very difficult situation. All right? But now we're going to see Peter moving out into an impossible one. All right? So all of them, the 12, are in a really difficult and testing situation. We're now going to see Peter moving out of that into an impossible one. All right. Now, notice, all right, that Peter didn't do anything about this until he'd received endorsement from Jesus. So, so Peter said, Lord, if it's you, bid me come. He's asking permission. Saying, Lord, can I walk on the water like you are? And Jesus said, come. All right. Now, that's important. What Peter is doing here is not irresponsible. Now, I've heard people speak about this. And they say that Peter was here being irresponsible and kind of like show off. You know, and Jesus let him, but didn't really want him to. That's not the situation at all. If Peter had been wanting to do this to be a show-off, Jesus wouldn't have let him do it. It's simple as that. So what Peter is doing here is not irresponsible. He is here responding to the clear guidance of the Lord. All right? Now we'll read verse 29. <coughs> Jesus said, come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. Now, we said earlier, didn't we, that Jesus was walking on the water. And here, Peter walked to Jesus on the water. Now, that's important. He didn't jump about. He didn't do cartwheels. And he didn't do a little dance and a few choruses of New York, New York. Is he? He very hesitantly and carefully and humbly walked. Now, can you see how important that is? He was exactly right. You see, God doesn't expect nor want the spectacular from us. What he wants from us is the consistent. You see? Nowhere in the Bible are we ever commanded 
advised or asked by God to be successful. But what we are commanded continuously in the Bible is to be faithful. Now, can you see the difference there? Because, I mean, different people have different characters. I mean, sinful natures go different ways, don't they? And there are some Christians that they've, they've got what I would call that, that, that drama element. Or everything needs to be embellished. Okay. Um, you know, if they're going to lay hands on someone, it's got to be by holding a microphone and a couple of hundred people looking on. They can't just do it quietly. You see what I mean? It's, it's got to be done, you know, it's showman. There's that element, a look at me, and it's, it's got to be dramatic. It's got to be impressive. Jesus was not the slightest bit like that, incidentally. All right. He was very, very low-key, and that's what God wants us to be. And, you know, as I say, Peter did not use this opportunity to sort of like, da 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 da, -da across the water. He, he was in a situation, he, he wouldn't have dared do that. It was just one step at a time. And this is important. We must never reach to be successful. We must never look to be spectacular. Now, it doesn't mean that God will not, at times, do spectacular things through us. God is spectacular, but we're not. We're not. We're ordinary. We're just people. God is spectacular. Great and wonderful is the Lord. Not great and wonderful for us. It's the Lord, all right? So, therefore, we must never concern ourselves about being spectacular, being successful, anything like that at all. We must concern ourselves to be faithful. Now, when you teach little kids as they get probably six, seven, eight or nine, you know, as you start giving pocket money, you start to teach them how to organise their money, don't you? And the principle that I hope you do teach them is this. If you look after the pennies, the pounds will look after themselves. And that's absolutely true. But that also, that same principle applies to us following the Lord. You see, the thing is, if we simply get on with being faithful in little things, day by day, just following the Lord, all right, day by day, just living in the way that he wants us to and repenting when we fail, all right? If we just get on doing the menial things of life every day as to the Lord, if we get on being faithful with that, then anything that the Lord wants to do through us that might be a bit special or dramatic or spectacular, all that will take care of itself. But very often, when you get Christians who are, they're, they're reaching for the spectacular, aren't they? You know, they're, they're all taken up with when God's going to use me in healing. Is he? And they're, oh, God's going to, I'm going to be a preacher to many nations. That's one of the standard prophecies that goes around today, isn't it? Preacher to many nations, all right? They're, they've got their head full of all this stuff. And yet, the nitty-gritty day-to-day life, they, they don't seem to be, you know, concerned about that. You know, like serving each other, serving people, giving, whatever, praying. You know, it's, for them it's the drama, and they're not bothered with the, they want an exciting life. Not for them the normal, boring, everyday life of us plebs. Well, that's wrong. If we just get down, our heads down, faithful in little things, anything of the dramatic well, okay, that will take care of itself. But we mustn't be lusting after it, because it is possible to lust after it, and it's wrong, okay. Now then, verse 30. So here's Peter, very gently, very humbly, one step at a time. Now then, when he saw the wind, he was afraid, and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Now, <coughs> Peter 
is trusting the Lord to sustain him in a frightening and impossible situation. This is a lake that is virtually a sea in a storm. And the Sea of Galilee, when it has a storm, has a very bad storm. And here is Peter actually walking through these waves, which are probably several metres high. All right? He's actually walking his way through them to Jesus. So he's being kept, he's trusting the Lord in a really difficult situation. Now then, thus far, he kept his eyes on Jesus. All right? And while he kept his eye on Jesus, the impossibility of the situation was overcome. Jesus was walking on the water quite happily. Now then, as long as Peter kept looking to Jesus, he shared in Jesus' experience of overcoming the situation. Can you see that? Jesus was walking on the water. As long as Peter looked to Jesus, he was walking on the water as well. So while he looked to Jesus, he shared Jesus' experience. And the experience of Jesus is that he overcomes. So as long as Peter looked to Jesus, Peter overcame as well. But now he looks away. Now all the time he could see the waves out of the corner of his eye. He's looking to Jesus. But he, he could see the situation out of the corner of his eye and he could hear that wind. But now there's a change. And what happens now is that Peter turns his attention away from Jesus onto the situation. Alright? One minute earlier, he saw Jesus as well as the situation. Now, all he can see is the impossibility. Alright? And the moment that happens, alright, his fear reasserts itself, his faith is overwhelmed, his eyes are off Jesus, and he no longer shares Jesus' experience. Can you see what I mean? And, naturally, he sank. He sank. As long as he looked to Jesus, he shared the experience of Jesus. But once those fears, and the anxiety, and everything, once that overwhelmed his face, he turned his eye away from Jesus, and now he saw only the circumstances. And the result of that, he no longer shared Jesus' experience, and therefore he sank. Now then, here is the main point. When following the Lord leads us into circumstances which are far from pleasant, and which seem impossible to overcome, you either walk forward with your eyes on Jesus, or you sink. It's one or the other. There is no middle course. To really follow the Lord, which means trials and testings and tribulations, means many wonderful, nice things as well. But it does mean testings and trials and tribulations, often of a very unpleasant nature, all right. Now, when following the Lord has led you into that kind of situation, you are either on the sea or the sea is on you. You are either on the waves or you are under the waves. There is no static, neutral, in-between. It's one or the other. 
So to be a disciple, it's not you sink or swim. It's you walk or you sink. You peg on or you peg out. Can you see? When Peter looked to Jesus, he was moving forward towards him, making progress, sharing Jesus' experience, walking on the sea. But when he didn't look at Jesus, not only did he stop going forward and therefore wasn't making any progress, not only was his forward progress impeded, he sank. Boom, down he went. And that is why there is no stagnation in following the Lord. There is never a time when we can put our feet up and relax. Now, there are many times when the Lord gives us nice circumstances. He knows that it can't be trials and tribulations all the time. And there are times when spiritually you can relax. Yeah, that's right, when nicer circumstances come along. <clears throat> but there's never a time when we can just put our feet up and throw our arms back and say, oh right, I can sort of like, you know, take my eyes off the Lord now and it doesn't matter. There's never a time it's forward or it's down, all right. So Peter is now sinking. He is in deep trouble. And in verse 31, uh, well, he cried out, Lord, save me. And Jesus immediately reached out his hand and caught him, saying, O oh man of little faith, why did you doubt? Now, Peter, as soon as he realised what he'd done, as soon as he realised that he'd taken his eyes off Jesus, as soon as he realised he wasn't trusting him and realised that he was thinking, he cried out to him. And Jesus was raised him up immediately. Alright? Now, there is never a point of no return when following the Lord. Genuinely crying out to the Lord will always bring instantaneous response from him. Jesus didn't sort of like, you know, here's Peter sinking and crying out, Lord, save me. Jesus didn't stand there thinking, well, I'll give him ten minutes because that will help him to learn his lesson. You know, Jesus didn't leave him in the mess to sort it out for himself. The moment Peter called out, okay, Jesus rescued him. And that is always what Jesus will do. Whenever we fall, and here, Peter fell. He fell from grace. He took his eyes off Jesus. He stopped trusting Jesus. He'd had permission from Jesus to walk to him. But before he got there, he was doubting, and down he went. In effect, Peter's evil heart of unbelief, and we all have that evil heart of unbelief, Peter's evil heart of unbelief convinced him that Jesus was not telling the truth, and Peter believed it. He has fallen from grace, and he realises it, and he cries out, Lord, save me, and the Lord does. And when we fall, when we sin, there is always full and immediate restoration when we cry out to the Lord in repentance. Right. That's vitally important. The moment we confess our sin, we are forgiven. And there's no record of it in heaven. But also, look, Jesus immediately reached out his hand and caught him, saying to him, O man of little faith, why did you doubt? Now look, Jesus restored him, but Jesus did correct him for doubting. Peter got his smack on the wrist. Peter, uh, Jesus told him off. Because Peter needn't have sunk. There was no reason 
Peter need have sunk. If he'd have kept looking to Jesus, he would have walked all the way to Jesus. And there is never any reason for us to sink either. Oh, it feels like it. Twelve-foot waves, and there you are, standing in the middle of them. Oh, it felt to Peter, like, what, what choice is there but to sink? How can, you, how can I possibly keep my eyes on Jesus? It's inevitable that I sink. But that was a lie, it wasn't. He didn't have to sink. He didn't have to fall. And neither do we have to fall. And so it's important that when we do fall, that we repent of it, and that we stand corrected. Because even when we find ourselves doubting the Lord, you know, I mean, one seems that, you know, that if you kind of lost your temper and swore at someone, you think, oh yeah, that's a definite sin. I've definitely got to put that, you know, I can see that was very wrong. But somehow, if we find ourselves <coughs> doubting the Lord and worrying, that's kind of in a category, well, yeah, it needs, need, needs putting right, but it's not quite sin, is it? You know, I mean, it's not like swearing at someone, is it? It's not like nicking something, is it? It's not like resenting someone or fornicating, is it? Well, I tell you, it is. It's calling Jesus a liar. When we doubt, when we stop trusting Jesus and worry and fret, that is calling God a liar. Because he has told us, fret not thyself, it tends only to evil. That is a commandment. What is there to worry about? But we worry anyway. Can you see? We take our eyes off of Jesus. And that is a terribly wrong thing for us to do. That is our evil heart of unbelief. That is pure sin when we take our eyes off of Jesus. And I know that when I take my eyes off of Jesus, I know that that is sin. And I'm not thinking about him, I'm thinking about me. And I'm not trusting him, I'm thinking about me. And I'm giving in to my sinful nature. My heart of unbelief is completely overwhelming the faith that he, by <coughs> grace, has given me. And it's my fault that it is, you see. So it was right that Peter got told off for sinking, but he was restored immediately. That's the important thing. Now then, verse 32. And when they got into the boat, now Jesus, he's picked him up and kind of walked him back, you know, holding hands. Rather sweet, really, isn't it? They've got back in the boat, right? When they got into the boat, the wind ceased. Now then, I must say, they climb back into the boat, all right, Jesus and Peter. So it's the, there's the other 11, all right, and, and now Peter and Jesus climbing. And the moment, the moment that the two of them climb into the boat, the wind stops and the storm goes away. Now, when I read that, I thought, that's, that's a bit of a coincidence, isn't it? Isn't it? That the moment Jesus got in the boat with Peter, immediately the storm stopped. Was that a coincidence? Well, no, of course it wasn't a coincidence. It tells us something that is vitally important. It tells us that Jesus was in control of the storm. It tells us that those winds that were torturing, that the waves that were torturing the disciples, and the winds that, that, that were making them feel that everything was against them, the fact that it all stopped when Jesus got in the boat with Peter tells us this, Jesus sent that storm. Now then, I, I, I heard someone speaking on this once, <coughs> and they said that, uh, you know, that this storm 
was uh, was Satan using the wind and the waves, and it is Satan controlling the weather to try and kill the disciples and to try and kill Jesus when he went to them. And it was Satan behind the storm. Now, if I ask myself, were they right or wrong? My answer is this: they might well be right. It might well have been that Satan brewed that storm up. But here's the point: behind everything that Satan does is Jesus working him like a blooming glove puppet, because Jesus is Lord. So the question, did Satan send this storm, or was it purely the work of Jesus and Satan was nothing to do with it? My answer is it doesn't matter, the end result is the same. Jesus was in charge of the storm. It started when he said it could, and it finished when he told it to finish. Is it? So the Lord, he was totally in control. All the time that the disciples were there, you know, the, the, the long hours through the night, you know, with the wind and the waves and absolutely terrified, and Jesus praying away, we've now discovered another thing that Jesus was praying. Waves a bit higher, Father. A little bit higher. Wind a bit stronger, Lord. Here's it, and we've discovered another thing that Jesus was praying. You see, he was arranging it. He is the Lord of all. He is behind Every, even that which Satan does against us, it is all in the Lord's plan so that his will is done, all right. So, um, you know, for us, these times of testings and the difficulties and that, when they've done their work in us, they'll stop. Jesus was, all right, okay, we, 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 you know, we can change that now. But they won't stop before they've done their work in our lives. And they won't go on after they've done their work in our lives. But what we do know is that when it's accomplished in us what it was sent in order to accomplish, then the circumstances will change, the storm will stop blowing, the, the, the waves will settle, and it will be calm again. All right. All our trials and testings are controlled by the Lord. Everything we're going through, individually, and some individuals here are going through a very bad time, what we're going through as a church, as a church we've definitely been through a very bad time, but that should not surprise us. But whatever bad time is happening <laughs> to you individually or to us as a church, when God has done his work in us, then that situation, those circumstances will change. All right. So let's ask then, what was the point of the trial? What was the point of this storm? What the testings? Yeah, they're to test our faith. They're to purify us. Okay, but why this storm? What was it that Jesus wanted to do to the disciples, whereby he used the storm? All right. Well, look at verse thirty-three. And those in the boat worshipped him, saying, "Truly, you are the Son of God." What it accomplished was this: they saw more clearly who he was they realized that he was their God. They realized his power. They saw more of Jesus in all his glory. That was one thing they saw. What was the other thing they saw more of? They saw more of themselves in their true light. It was the 12 disciples, the true story. Because after the feeding of the 5,000, that wasn't the true story. The true story was in this boat, freaking, like a bunch of babies. That was the truth about them. And that is the truth about us. They saw their helplessness, their weakness, 
their total dependence upon him. Now, when it comes to going into the factory in the morning, yeah, that's a skill. You can do that. Or my work, that I, or, or, you know, there are things, yeah, we're not weak and helpless in that sense. You know, a carpenter, he can do carpentry. An accountant, he can do accounts. That's not what I'm talking about. But when it comes to following the Lord, anything that is to do with the work of the Holy Spirit and the glorifying of God in our lives and our maturing, then what we need to understand is that nothing inside of us has any contribution to make. We are sinful through and through. We have no contribution to make to God in the process of Him making us as we should be. We must surrender, we must sell out to Him. But what we've got to realise is that we are completely weak and spiritually helpless. Can you see? And we must not trust ourselves, but we do trust ourselves. So God brings along situations that our failure, our dismal failure in those situations shows us a bit more of the truth about ourselves. And then we trust ourselves a little bit less and we trust the Lord a little bit more. They have been tried here in the furnace of afflictions and the gold is a little bit purer, Jesus in them. And the dross is a little bit more consumed. Now what's the dross? That's them, their sinful nature, their self-reliance. And they've been chucked in the furnace and the heat's been turned up and they've bubbled away and all the muck has come to the surface. And when there's repentance of that muck, then the Lord can skim it off. Here's a skim it off. And then, exactly as John the Baptist said of Jesus, he must increase and I must decrease. That is what the trials and the tribulations are for. To show us the truth about how mighty, how powerful, how wonderful Jesus is. And to show us how nothing we are. And that it has to be Him in us and not us in our own strength. That's what the trials are for. Now, one more thing before we end, alright? On a slightly different note, but it's important. Can you imagine the other disciples who all through this were sitting nice and safely? I mean, Peter's gone out there, all right, stepped out of the boat. Can you imagine the other disciples when Peter and Jesus, you know, climb back into the boat, and here's the night there, nice and safe in the boat. Can you imagine them having a go at Peter for cocking it up? That would have been a bit of a nerve, wouldn't it? You see, Peter went further with the Lord than the disciples in the boat did, didn't he? And I wonder if some of them had a bit of a dig. Muck that up, didn't you, Peter? Now, there are some Christians who, sadly, are just like that. They won't step out and really follow the Lord. Oh, they'll be part of a church. They'll, they'll do a bit of witnessing, you know, fiver here and there in the collection or, or you know whatever in the box can you see yeah they're going through the motions and to a large extent it's sincere yeah as far as it goes it's sincere but they won't step out of the boat and go the whole hog there are many Christians like that sadly and the great tendency is that they sit around waiting to be negative about the mistakes of those who do get out of the boat and go the whole hog and that is a real tragedy. 
and there are a lot of Christians like that around. I mean, if it just, just take one area, the gifts of the Spirit. Now, isn't it easy for people who don't step out, all right, wouldn't, wouldn't be caught dead prophesying, you know, too, too proud, you know, wouldn't, wouldn't dare run the risk of getting something wrong because they think they'd look silly, all right? So they wouldn't dream of moving out in the gift of the Spirit. And then someone else who does, all right, they give a prophecy and they cock it up. And the person who never steps out, you see, it's what I say, it's what you get with the gifts of the Spirit, mistakes. They're all pious about it. And there are a lot of Christians, I've met Christians like this, they will criticise the mistakes that other Christians make when those mistakes have been made as a result of going the whole hog. Now these other Christians, they're not going to make the mistakes going the whole hog because they're not going the whole hog. They're nice and safe. <coughs> and there have been times when, you know, I've, I've known Christians who have kind of like, you know, when I've, I've really cocked it up, you know, and stuff like that. But because I've really been going the whole hog, and they've moaned at me and they've criticised me. And my answer to them is this, I think the way I follow the Lord is better than the way they don't. Now, can you see that important principle? Peter mucked it up, yeah. But he was well out in front of the others because he was willing to go that much further. So therefore, we can reach a conclusion and we can sum this up in, in one sentence. Peter only sank because he trusted God in the first place. It's important to realise that to go the whole hog means that you will commit sins that you wouldn't have committed if you didn't go the whole hog, is it? <laughs> Because when you really walk on the water with Jesus, you suddenly add to your repertoire the potential of the sin of sinking. A disciple sitting safely in the boat isn't going to commit that sin. Now let me ask you, who's more pleasing to Jesus? The disciple out of the boat who sinned by sinking or the disciple in the boat who didn't sin by sinking? Well, Peter was more pleasing to Jesus than the eleven. Can you see that? So therefore, if we're going to step out of the boat, and, and that's, that's what following the Lord is, well, we can sit in our nice, safe little boats all we want, but the Lord isn't in the boat, he's out there saying, come on, out of the boat, learn to put your security and your trust in me. Now, anyone who does that is going to need their spiritual snorkels and goggles and flippers. Of course they're going to. But let us never let the fear of needing our snorkels, flippers and goggles prevent us getting out of the boat. Because the Lord would rather... I mean, if that had been... You know, I mean, me, I'd have probably stepped... At, got out on the ledge of the boat, fainted and just belly flopped <laughs> over the side. But I'll tell you, that would have been far more pleasing to the Lord than, than sitting in the boat or no, because I might just faint and do a belly flop, and then I'll look silly. Can you see what I mean? Any effort going the whole hog, hog with the Lord is more pleasing to him than not making the effort. Even when making the effort lands you flat up on your face, you know, flat on your face, totally cocked it up, totally failed the Lord. The mere fact that we've stepped out at his leading absolutely thrills him. And uh, so when we see people out the boat sinking, 
Let's never be schneid sitting nice and comfy in the boat saying, oh, look, they're cocking it up. Let's get out there and cock it up with them. That's what the Lord wants. Let's get out there and make the mistakes with them. All right. So the Lord is calling us to walk on the water. I'll leave it there. Amen. Amen. Thank you.